As we progress through the autumn season, the cold weather is forcing farmers to harvest their crops. One such crop are wine grapes, including the grape species used for Riesling, Chardonnay, and Merlot wines. But did you know that when it comes to cold tolerance, not all grapes are made equal? Open your ears and mind, and let's chat about that. Welcome to GriffinCast, a podcast where we casually chat about science coming out of the College of Biological Sciences at the University of Guelph, and how that work can affect lives around the world. I'm your host, Michael Lim. With me today is special guest Dr. Annette Nassib, and we'll be chatting about how researchers are uncovering different methods grape plants use to handle the cold, and what that might mean for the wine grape industry. Welcome, Dr. Nassib. I'm glad to be here. So... If you were to uh, meet some random person on the street, or I say a new undergrad, how would you describe your research and what you do? Uh, well, my research looked really at how plants uh, react to the changing environment, in particular to the lower temperatures, already before really the uh, frost set in, but that they are prepared to deal with that at a molecular level, may- mainly. So I guess that's really important here in Canada with our <laughs> extremely long winter uh, climate. That's right, yeah. And especially because uh, the wine grapes uh, that, that I'm working with, they originally came from the Mediterranean region. Oh. And that is, of course, a quite different climate than we have here. So you can imagine that there are some challenges there. Mm-hmm. So kind of connected to working with these semi-exotic plants from the Mediterranean. Do you ever expect to be doing this kind of work with grape plants or? Uh... Not really. I came I came uh, to it uh, via the research that I was doing on plant viruses. And so I was looking at viruses in various crops and that also then included the grapes. And just by circumstance, it was that I started working on the cold acclimation of grapes. And that is because there was a faculty member Dr. Brian McCursey, and he worked on cold tolerance. And he was leaving the university to take a position at a uh, industry. Mm-hmm. And so uh, because I was already working with grapes and had experience with extracting things from them, and it's not so easy with these woody plants, yeah. they asked me if I could uh, continue with that kind of research. And I said, yes, so that's how I came to it. So it was really uh, just by circumstances. But it's fun. <laughs> I mean, I guess sometimes the best that you can do, or I guess hope for, is that you're doing something that is novel, but still you have a little bit of experience in where you're expanding and learning new skills. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's really, they are more challenging plants. Usually, uh, most of the research is done on model plants that are a bit easier to work with. But then the challenge is to see how that, what people find in these model plants, how that translates into more real-life plants, so to say, uh, the crop plants that, that people are interested in. So speaking of research on studying crops that people are interested in, you recently published a study titled Leaves of More Cold-Hardy Grapes Have a Higher Density of Small Sunken Stomata. So what encouraged you to study that particular topic within this wider field? Well, that is actually because of research that was done in these model plants had shown that there's a particular regulatory protein that activates both the cold acclimation, so the adaptation of plants to lower temperatures, 
and it activates the development of stomata. And in principle, that's weird that one protein does both things. And so uh, we thought then, well, is that just some weird things from these model plants or is that something that's more general? So that's how I came to look at the stomata. So speaking of stomata, a large part of this research in this particular study is based around looking at stomata and characterizing them through a variety of different factors, such as their size, their density, and position. For our listeners, stomata are tiny little openings in leaves. So imagine tiny mouths that are used to exchange carbon dioxide and water vapor with the surrounding environment. Adjusting the number and how far these mouths are opening are critical for survival in stressful environments for a variety of plants. Do you think you'd like to clarify about that description? Uh, yeah, so what really what's happening when they open, then it allows the uh, carbon dioxide to come into the leaf and therefore the cells can take the carbon as building blocks to grow. Uh, but at the same time, when they open, then also the plant can lose more water through these openings. And that can be detrimental when you are when you don't have the possibility of replenishing that water. And that's why the opening and closing and the number of stomata are so important to regulate for plants. They want to grow as much as possible, but not to in such a way that, that uh, you cannot take up any more water because that's then they will dry out and die. So it, it's a kind of a balancing act there. Yeah. So I never really took into consideration how important it was to maintain a certain water level because, well, in humans, we're not really thinking about the water we're breathing out. But clearly in plants, it's really important to maintain that balance between water and gas exchange. Yeah, and the problem is really that, that if you want to avoid this water loss and you close your stomata, you don't get this carbon in so that you cannot grow. So it's really you have to find the balance. And that is what seems to be the case that, that these grapes that we were looking at, that they are doing in a specific way by having these different sizes. So a really important technique used in this paper is scanning electron microscopy, or SEM. And you use it to look at the differences between stomata across different leaves from different wine grape species. Can you briefly describe this technique for our listeners? Yeah, that it is really a, a very nice technique to use. But the thing is that these cells are very small, the, the leaf cells at the surface of the leaf. Mm. And, and that's where these stomata are. So if you want to have a look at how many stomata there are, how big they are, etc., you need to enlarge your view. And so you can do that with a light microscope. It's a regular kind of microscope. But um, when you do that, then the focus is not always so good. And actually what people often use is that you take nail polish to rub on the, put on the leaf, let it harden, and then take that to examine under the microscope. Because when you have it under the microscope too long, your tissue will dry out, et cetera, and it's difficult to focus. But the problem is that nail polish was that it cannot really take all the dips and, and valleys that are in, in the leaf surface. Mm. And the scanning electron microscope enables you to look at everything and just enlarges it enough that you can see the different cells, but it, it gives you still a large enough area. And then you would use a more fancy electron microscope, for example, that uh, requires much more preparation. You wouldn't be able to process as many samples. So the scanning electron microscope is really uh, very exciting to look at because you can also put live tissue under it. So you really can 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 see uh, see it very nicely. So I'm clearly very inexperienced when it comes to SEM techniques because mm. that was all very insightful to me. Uh, um, but I guess I would describe this here as kind of like 
if you feel a very, very fine sandpaper, it might feel almost smooth to your fingers, but when you zoom in, you can see all these tiny little bumps and crevices. Yeah, that's right. And and the scanning electromicroscope that I used was a tabletop scanning electromicroscope. So the, a simple version of you have very fancy scanning electromicroscopes that are, are more complicated. But this is a relatively small one. It's a, a little box and, and you can just put in your sample. Um, you have to work quite fast. So usually we take pictures and then really count the cells or measure the cells later from the pictures. Uh, I mean, it must be an incredibly grueling process to even process a few leaves then. Yeah, and you have to do a lot to, to get meaningful data. So we really have been counting thousands of cells. That's why that's why I say all these people were so important that they uh, are willing to do that and, and uh, stay the course. <laughs> <laughs> well... I guess so. Um, a little result of your study shows that more cold-tolerant species, such as, say, Riesling grapes, have higher stomata densities and were smaller and more sunken. For our listeners, sunken refers to one of the positions that stomata can be. So they can be either below the leaf surface level or above or at the same level. So sunken stomata are thought to be more beneficial as they're thought to open and close faster and uh, require less energy. And therefore, have reduced water loss. And I guess it also plays into that whole gas exchange balance I was talking about earlier. Is there anything you'd like to add on to that? Yeah, the, really, the, the finding or the idea that the smaller stomata can open and close faster than the larger one was a study that was not done by me, but by some physicists. So they are much more knowledgeable about that kind of stuff. But it was interesting to 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 read that paper because. Um, that that makes that you can understand that when a plant is just temporarily under some better circumstances, it can quickly open these small stomata and still get some CO2 in, some carbon dioxide. Uh, whereas the large one, they are really, you have to crank them open and that takes much more time. So that that uh, will not happen then. Uh, and, and what you mentioned also is that they are sunken. And everybody might know when you are in a valley, you don't feel the wind as much as when you are at the top of a hill. So that's the same thing as in, in that leaf. Mm. And then when you have the wind going by, that will also increase the water loss. So when they are sunken, you have less water loss. Ah, okay, I see. Um, so why do you think there are such a large increase in small sunken stomata in some grape species like Riesling compared to others like Merlot? Um, do you think this is found in other cold-tolerant grape species? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, we, we actually discovered this whole thing first by looking at wild grapes. They are far more cold-tolerant, frost-tolerant than the cultivated grapes. And these wild grapes, for example, depends on the conditions, but if you treat them, pre-treat them first, they can withstand about minus 40 degrees Celsius. The cultivated grape, like Riesling, can withstand something like minus 23 degrees Celsius. And the Merlot is a little bit higher, okay, in temperature. So can be stand only uh, minus 18 or something like that. Okay, so, but those differences can be important. But we first looked at the wild grape and there we found that we were first concentrated looking at the number of stomata. We had no idea that there were different sizes. And that really, initially we saw the different sizes, of course, but we thought, okay, that are just stomata that still have to grow that are busy getting bigger. And only when we looked at really more mature leaves, so leaves that have finished their development, and we looked at those, they still had these so small stomata. 
So the MBB lice, it's really their final size. It's not that they are still developing. And that's how it all came about to look at this. And so the, the wild grape has also higher number of these smaller sunken stomata. So kind of taking the idea and flipping it on its head, would you expect to see larger stomata in like warm tolerant species or is it more of like a stressful environmental um, yeah, no, let, let me explain, because I was talking about that water loss, and maybe you wonder what does that water loss have to do with frost? Well, when you have frost, you get ice. That means that a lot of the free water is not free anymore. It's in an ice block. So there's less free water. So in fact, the grape is exposed, the plant is exposed to a drought condition. Oh. Yes, okay. And so in the same way, actually, when, when we looked at some papers where people had been looking at it from Spain, had been looking at some um, grape cultivars and looked at their uh, stomata, and but they were looking at different kinds of things. But when we took their data that they published in their paper and analyzed it in our way, then we found that a cultivar that was more drought tolerant also has had more smaller stomata. And so it, it in both cases, it has the same function, at least that's what we think, that it will help the plant to reduce its water loss while still enabling it to open quickly the stomata when the conditions are okay so that they still can grow. So speaking of surviving trout, I remember reading that in your paper as well. I thought that was really interesting. Mm -hmm. Would you say that this alteration to the stomata is something that all plants use across all stressful environments to survive? various stresses or is that more something you need to investigate? Uh, well, for in environments that they, where they would have uh, drought stress and, and another circumstance where a plant would experience drought stress is when you have salty soil. And that is relevant. Uh, you might have uh, seen some reports, for example, from Australia, when, you, when they have their crops and they fertilize a lot, then the part of the fertilizer is not taken up by the plant and it stays in the soil. And so these soils become more and more salty. And that's a big, big problem actually for the agriculture. So also there you would expose then a plant to more drought conditions because the salt attracts water. So it will take it out of the plant and, and, and um, dry out the plant. But the, the whole idea is so about these small stomata where the data is more general to other plants that I uh, I don't know, but I'm sure, I mean, I bet that there are other plants that have also this kind of phenomenon, but people, like I said, the, the more common way of looking at uh, the stomata would be by taking such a nail polish imprint, and that wouldn't show necessarily the sunken stomata. So um, basically people have to look again, then with the scanning electron microscope to see if they have the same thing or not. So, out of curiosity, is the SEM technique a somewhat new or modern technique that many um, studies in the past have used? I'm just curious why people have opted more for the analog nail polish style instead of the more, I guess, advanced SEM you'd used. Well, this is a dedicated kind of equipment. It's actually not that expensive, relatively speaking. I think you can buy one for about $10,000 or something like that. <laughs> it's still quite a lot of money. It's quite a lot of money, but compared to an electron microscope, it's, it's cheaper. And we actually use it at the university also in our course because it is relatively easy to use. So some students can just use it to, to make a picture of whatever they are working on at, uh, in a 
in a course. Um, but um, so, but it is a piece of equipment that that not everybody uses for many different things. So many people won't have it, and that's why they they don't look at it. And because they thought that the nail polish technique was pretty good and that was easy. So why would you try something else until now we realize that that unfortunately doesn't catch all the stomata. So, but when you don't know that, then you think you're fine, right? Ah, yeah. I mean, it totally makes sense. (laughs) Um, So zooming out, what was your favorite part of this research project and why? Now, because I mentioned earlier, this regulatory protein in the model plant was thought to increase the number of stomata and increase frost tolerance, but that in principle initially didn't make sense. If why, when you would have more stomata, you would think you have more water loss. Right. And you just think straight, it is all the same kind of stomata. So that was prompted that to do that. And we were excited then to see that yes, there are more stomata, but there are these small sunken stomata. So it's not necessarily leading to more water loss. And that was of course, satisfying to find a kind of solution to the, the problem that we thought that it would be. Right. I bet that probably ties into being the most surprising part of your project. We were not expecting to see a lost amount and suddenly you looked at it and there's an overwhelming amount and you had to explain what, what the heck is going on here. Well, and especially because we first didn't realize that the smaller stomata was the final size. We first looked at younger leaves and we thought, okay, they are still developing or something like that, but we can still count them. But then we realized, no, that's the final size. Look at the older leaves that have finished developing. And then we saw, okay, yes, we get more, but the, the, they stay small. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, if you could go back in time and change one thing about your study, what would it be and why? Well, I, we will, I would have been great if we had realized earlier that the small stomata was the final size because we did a lot of counting of just uh, and we didn't measure the size in the beginning because we didn't think that it was important because they were just developing still. So that was a lot of work to, to do. And then we had to basically redo it again and look at the older leaves to, to, uh, and then measure the sizes to get to the final picture. But you know that's how research goes. You you uh, have to be open for for whatever you get, and and realize that there are different explanations for things, and try to find out what the possibilities are, and then look at it in that way. So it is it is um, uh, exciting to go through that process. <laughs> yeah, I bet it's not very often that you you find a finding that goes completely against what you expect based on previous work and literature. And go. What the heck is going on here? Yeah, so it's must be really relieving to, to like ah, of course. Yeah, it's yeah, the size. exactly, exactly. That's that's exactly it. That you you feel satisfied that you at least you know I I don't know of course for hundred percent sure it correlates. So we think that that is what is the case. But uh, uh, what real proof hundred percent proof is difficult to get in science. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Just a, a reasonable amount yeah, of confidence. That's right. For. Yeah. So, um, I think we can both agree that in general, this study kind of highlights that there are new techniques, such as using SEM to study stomata, and this should be used for a variety of other species. But what are you hoping that the general public takes away from this uh, research? No, I mean, well, for the to make, if it can take a step back and and just for the practical application 
um, for for to grow grapes in a vineyard, it usually takes about three years before you get a yield. And uh, it's always that there are other cultivars that people think they make good wine and they want to have it. So they want to grow it here. And it would be nice if you know in advance if they are able to withstand the temperatures here and, and to survive. And so if you could now look at the stomata of the plants when they're still in pots and look at that and compare them with the cultivars that you know, you can say, okay, it's more like Riesling or say it's more like the Merlot that doesn't do so well here. Oh, so right. in that way, you could already pre-select a little bit, although that's not the whole story why they would be cold tolerant, but you have a higher chance that you choose then a new cultivar that might be uh, able to grow here well and before you plant it out, because you can imagine how much work that is. You have to plant the whole field and, uh, and, and grow things and then wait for three years and then you figure out, okay, it was not such a good choice. That's not uh, nice. So I hope that it can be used like that. Now, beside that, like I said, the, the SEM is relatively simple, might still be a, a more dedicated person to use. But one thing that I think would be exciting if it would be possible to have a kind of community project, because the most of the time with this, this kind of research is really the counting. And because to look at, to take pictures from the leaves, yes, that, that takes time. But the most of the time comes afterwards when you have the pictures and you have to count. So it might be fun to, to try to have a kind of community project that people get the pictures and then do the counting and, and can see something like that. So that you, that you, uh, and, and at the same time, people see the pictures so they understand more about a plant and how it looks like. Uh, just a little bit bigger than than they normally uh, see, and they uh, might then appreciate uh, plants a whole lot more than than they do now, maybe. <laughs> but you know, that's I, I'm I'm always dreaming about these kind of things. I don't know <laughs> possible to do, and you have to have, of course, people the, that are interested in doing it, or you have to have a teacher that that is interested in doing something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah, but you, you know, absolutely have to be motivated. Yeah. I think it's a great idea and be really fun. I mean, there's no age where you can't be a researcher. Exactly, exactly. Old. And and for me, what, what is for me the exciting thing about research is to be ready for the unexpected and to be open in thinking. And, and so I think this type of thing might open the eyes of some people and they might have heard of Somatar at the high school, but I find... These things are so abstract when you haven't seen it yourself. When you see it yourself, you get excited. You, you see it. Oh, yeah, you know, here, these are open and these are closed and et cetera. So I think that this, uh, yeah, it could be something. Yeah, for sure. I think so, too. It'd be a lot more fun than, say, like, you know, technically you have a drawing of leaf and you're like, yeah. okay, cool. But actually seeing the surface of leaf yeah. is so much yeah. more engaging and impactful. Well, there's a lot of questions from me. I'm going to ask you some that are coming from our social media now. So our first question is, are cold hardy grape species native to Canada or were they specifically bred to be able to be grown here? Well, the, the, the uh, cultivars that are being used to make wine, they all have been imported from, from the Mediterranean or bred, but I mean, more bred for the quality of their wine. The wild grape that I was talking about, that is like very cold hardy. I mentioned was minus 40 that it can, can withstand. And that one grows all over Canada. In Ontario, the Vitus riparia is the only wild grape that is growing wild. So if 
anybody goes out and sees it, they know immediately which land it is. But it can go very far to the north, also to Man in Manitoba, for example. Oh. So, but that unfortunately doesn't give nice wine. Oh. <laughs> I'm people, ask. people refer to that as as funky, so that doesn't usually <laughs> go well. So that is, uh, but you have to realize that also at a certain moment you get to an area where there might be a lot of snow cover. So actually the plant itself might not even be exposed that much to very low temperatures because it's protected by the oh, snow. Right. So there are different, uh, you have to be careful how you interpret uh, things, but uh, it, it can grow uh, very well. But like I said, it, the, the problem is that it is, um, uh, the, the wine doesn't taste very well. <laughs> So that kind of connects to our next question. Um, do cold hardy grape species produce the same quality of wine as regular species? Mm -hmm. If not, what is different about them? So Yeah, funky. but what, what, what has happened is that people have crossed the wild grape with the cultivated grape. Ah, okay. And, and then, then, of course, you don't get only this cold hardiness trait from that wild grape, you get also the funky taste a little bit. So what they have done, they cross that, and then that new plant that they got have crossed again over and over with the cultivated grape to try to select for keeping the cold hardiness, but getting better taste. And so some of right. those plants are being grown as well, but it depends on, on which uh, group of drinkers you belong to that you, you want to have the pure uh wine grape or that you go for this what they call them the hybrid wine <laughs> um so we kind of already touched upon this already um with selectively breeding for cold tolerance but are you aware of any genetically modified uh species out there that have been engineered for a particular trait yeah mostly people have well in many cases uh, it's not easy to make a transgenic plant in many cases people have um uh, used or made transgenic plants to test the concept. So, for example, with these uh, proteins that I talked about that are in, important for the cold tolerance, they can introduce that into a plant that's not cold tolerant and then test is it now uh, has a higher cold tolerance or not. For the commercial, so for the making a transgenic plant for real life, is actually the most interest there is to make grapes virus resistant. Ah, okay. And that is because grapes are really, uh, from from a disease point of view, if you work on diseases, you like them. But if you don't work on diseases, you dislike it because they they can have many, many different diseases. And and viruses can, can spread through the whole vineyard. So that is not something that people like. So the most effort is, is going on to make virus-resistant plants. And those are in the process of being developed. Okay. But you have to realize that with grape, um, the plants are grafted. Right. In a, in a vineyard, they are grafted. So you have a rootstock, that's the bottom part with the roots. And then on top of that, you put a, a desired grape. So the, uh, one of the ideas that is out there is to make the transgenic part the bottom part. So that the top part where you have the grapes that you use to make the wine is from a part that is not transgenic. Oh, okay. So in that way, you know, that you can can um, acceptable for consumers to take the take those plants. So that are different ideas that are out there that people are working on. Ah, okay. It's really interesting because uh, a previous study I worked on, so I know that there's a big concern about 
viruses in the soil. So if it contaminates your field, you essentially have to burn and sacrifice yes, everything. Yes, exactly. Uh, many viruses are, for example, transmitted by nematodes, the little worms that are in the soil. Yeah. So if you can can make a plant resistant to those, then you don't get the virus and uh, the plant will be healthy. Ah, very interesting. Um, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of our chat today. But do you have any final comments to make about your work? And if our listeners only take away one thing from our chat today, what do you hope it is? Well, I, I uh, think what, what I hope that people can take away is to keep your eyes open. I mean, for my work, okay, that's about the stomata. It's fun, but I can imagine for people that are not into this, it might be less fun. But what the takeaway is really is to keep your eyes open, be open for any possibility so that you recognize it when you get it. That's always the difficult part. If you only have a preconceived idea in your mind, then and it and it doesn't turn out that way, then you might be disappointed. But in fact, it might actually be quite exciting to find out what's happening in reality. And with that, we've come to the end of today's podcast. A big thanks again to our guest, Dr. Nett. Oh, Kassel. thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome to come back and join us again. Okay. Driven Cast is brought to you by your host, me, Michael Lim, with editing assistance from Ian Smith. If you're hungry to learn more about different science topics, please check out Scribe Research Highlights. That's Scribe, S-C-R-I-B-E, Research Highlights on the University of Guelph website at uofguelph.ca. Or you can follow us on social media at UFGCBS. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Music in the podcast comes from Upbeat, with the details on the show notes. Until next time, stay curious. Thank you.